Well, good morning, good day, good evening. My name is Jill, and these are my journals out loud. And I'm coming to you this morning. It's actually the middle of September in 2023, but this is something that's not really relevant to current events or timelines. So my point today with you is I want to cover this topic of hypervigilance. And one of the things that comes with this idea is that uh, it's bad. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about who we are as a Wired for Danger person, where we fall on the continuum between focus and vigilance in our scouting, right, in our capacity to pay attention. Uh, Situational awareness is what that's called in the external, but there's also an internal awareness that needs to be in correlation with that versus just being hyper because of course as I sat down to record this the dogs are kicking into we want to go out now mode and where does focus fall in all of this along with this thing I have been talking about uh, where it is in the therapeutic community labeled as emotional dysregulation I am calling it hyper versus hypo reactivity or reaction, meaning some of us get to zero to 100 very, very quickly. Some of us never get there. So we're all on continuums. We are all in different situations at different times. We're in different states of being at different times. And it's a very confusing conversation because especially if you're new. The whole point of me doing these podcasts is to talk to those of us who are what I call wired for danger, meaning we're going to score high on the hyper reactivity and the hyper vigilance continuum. And people who are flight freeze are going to score much lower on those two continuums. And so when you're in a quote unquote helping position, right? I, quote unquote, therapist with you, quote unquote, patient, right? You're too hyper. I'm going to help you calm down because hypervigilance is bad. So as a therapist and somebody who is wired for danger and who is prone to hypervigilance and hyperfocus and hyperreactivity, uh, I feel like I have a different perspective because I understand both sides and the continuum itself Whereas most therapeutic people, I believe, operate more in the freeze flight category. So they're coming at it from a very different state of mind and state of being. And, you know, for me, I'm trying to bring you ideas that are not researched and documented uh, because this theory that I'm trying to move forward is that we are operating primarily from our nervous system. It's the one that's taking in all the information uh, instead of this idea that somehow we are uh, ha- all have this tremendously unique set of issues that need to be diagnosed and managed. I think it's much simpler. I think we all have a default response to danger. We spend our life in a world that is more focused on what to be afraid of, what we don't want, than a world that's focused on what we do want. Uh, And most of us who are not fight people don't want fight people to be fighters. So we're in this really interesting time. Uh, Hypervigilance has come into more focused uh, oh, there's the girl dog go going on gear. So uh, the uh, the the focus on hypervigilance is most coming to the forefront around this concept of trauma, whether you want to call it complex trauma, simple trauma, combat trauma, uh, whatever. We have this idea that trauma is something that happens to us, that somehow we're a victim of trauma without looking at this reality that everybody has bad things happen, why do we all react so differently to it? And my theory is that we do that because we have a different wiring system. So in the same way, um, the Ayurvedic system of health divides you into three uh, categories. It's PETA, 
uh, I've forgotten them, kapha and the third one. But anyways, the whole principle of that is very similar in that your body uh, and your mind and your emotions fall into one of these three categories and you do better focusing your life within that framework. And one of the reasons I got interested in that was because certain physical activities are more uh, defined for certain body types, right? Ectomorph and endomorph, and I forget the other one. Sorry, that, that's all old stuff. I haven't thought about that stuff in a long time. But, but the point is, if you are short and strong and have big muscles and big bones, you are not going to be a sprinter. I think our nervous system is the same way. If you are wired to be hypervigilant and hyperreactive very quickly, you do much better in a combat situation than somebody who is wired to be very afraid and run away or to be very afraid and to freeze up. Uh, we see that in nature, right? The predator is much more wired to go after the prey. The prey doesn't usually fight back, and certainly not uh, unless it's pushed to do so. But its default may to be freeze up, right? There's camouflage. Certain prey animals are camouflage. That's how they stay alive. You know, certain animals are really fast. They run away. That's how they stay alive. And certain animals have big tusks or horns or nails or teeth. That's how they stay alive. And because humans all kind of look the same on the outside, we don't think about what our superpower is in the face of danger. We think about, well, we're all the same, so we should all react the same in the face of danger. And, you know, the confusing part about focusing through the nervous system is that we all have all three responses, fight, flight, freeze, right? Everybody responds in all three ways. We all have a sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system that's designed to respond to stress, fear, danger. That's the sympathetic that keeps us alive. And the parasympathetic, which calms us down, which keeps us from going off the deep end. Now, as I'm recording this, I have to tell you, I'm laughing because I'm trying to talk about focus, right, and and hypervigilance. And, you know, I'm always very super aware of my environment unless I get hyper-focused on something. So I'm trying to focus on this conversation. But in my peripheral vision, I've got these two dogs that are in play-fight mode. And I'm constantly monitoring them, one, that they don't knock, you know, my recording stuff off and in, a, in an issue. Two, they're making noise. So now I'm irritated with that. So my irritation factor is rising. Three, I'm focusing on the fact that when they get like this, you know, obviously things start to break, right? So that's just real life. You know, some people would be completely oblivious, like, oh, I don't care. They're just, you know, playing. I can just not pay attention, you know, uh, or I can only pay attention to them and I can't pay attention to this, you know, so the game for me is can I focus on the content I'm trying to communicate with you versus at the same time, observe, focus and pay attention to what they're doing. And does that mean I'm broken because I can't singularly focus? Or am I broken because I singularly focus and I can't multi-focus? And, you know, that's where as a mental health professional, you know, we get into this diagnostic pathological issue of trying to identify all these things that were built up into us to survive in nature. We forget that we weren't created to sit inside on computers and watch TV and then go, you know, go over seas and fight battles and then come back and just go to the grocery store. I'm thinking about the hurt locker, right? The two extremes from being hyper vigilant and hyper focused as the the main character diffuses bombs and then they bring him back into his real life, quote unquote, where he's a dad with his wife and his son and he's in the grocery store and he's out of his mind because he's bored. And so we label him as broken because he can't transition back into this 
wildly unstimulating, boring, you know, it's not that you don't love your wife and your kid, but the lifestyle itself is the opposite of what you're wired to be in the world. And, you know, you have to choose, right? You have to choose, am I going to be a good father and stay with my son and a good husband and stay with my wife and a responsible citizen and just, you know, produce day in and day out on this incredibly boring routine in which I'm going to lose my mind? Or do I give all that up and move over back into the military, which allows me to operate in this super hyper-focused way, hyper-vigilant way in which I feel alive. I feel good. I feel real. I having, um, I'm fulfilling what I was wired to do. I feel normal in a situation that everybody else is saying I shouldn't feel normal. Uh, and what we do know about it at a chemical wiring level is some people just are wired to take on danger and be comfortable and feel normal. Whereas some people, when they take on danger, feel very uncomfortable. Uh, and this all started for me with the idea that the people who are trying to help the people who feel normal in danger are very uncomfortable with danger. So there's no, it's like, you know, it's like somebody, it's, you know, it's like going to the doctor. If you're a woman and you're going to a female gynecologist, it's one conversation versus a male gynecologist, which is a separate one. You know, men don't have babies. They cannot, you can't say this is what it feels like and have them go, oh yeah, I know what you're talking about, right? We're doing our best through an intellectual process, but we have no visceral understanding. And everything about hyperfocus and hypervigilance and hyperreactivity is visceral. It's what you feel. It's nonverbal. It's instinctual. It's powerful. It is something that is very comfortable or very uncomfortable, depending on where you are in the scale. I don't know what's worse, them fighting or now her her trying to have me pet her and her sticking her head in the microphone and everything. And she won't leave me alone because she needs to be reassured. Oh, so, you know, it's, uh, these, these are like parallels that this is what real life is, right? Like I'm trying to do my job. She's finished playing and now she wants to be comforted and petted. And, you know, both of those are irritating while I'm trying to, quote unquote, do my job. And, you know, this is what parents are trying to do with their kids or their spouses. And life is complex. You know, we're all wired up a different way. We all have different needs at different times. We're all responding to stimuli in different ways. And we're pretending like everybody is operating out of the same system because the wiring that we can see the physical uh, effects of our incarnation, right? Our body look the same, right? We have two arms, two legs, we have a head, we know we have a brain, we, have a, we know we have a nervous system, but we can't see, we can if we do, you know, MRIs, we can see that there's a different wiring system. We can see in the brain, you know, when you're doing an MRI and you can see, uh, or a EEG, you can see electrical patterns that are different for our heart and our brain, uh, we know that we have different experiences. You know, when we think things, some of us get angry and some of us calm down. But because we kind of look the same and we have a belief system, we default and think everybody is viewing and experiencing the world the way we are. And, you know, that's never been true and it never will be true. But, you know, from the therapist perspective, you know, I started to see that they have no clue. I, you know, I have a clue because I live in both worlds, but most people, quote unquote, doing the helping have no clue what it feels like. It's because it's visceral. It's not an intellectual discussion. It's not like, uh, you know, building a doghouse, right? Where you get a blueprint and, you know, you just start going A, B, C, right? And you get it done. You can't just watch a YouTube video and have the, the completion of the project 
at a very superficial level, right? It's very complex because it's all mixed up into a hundred different things. Uh, you know, we ha- we're affected by our ancestors. You know, if our uh, previous generations experienced trauma, we may be wired in a way where we can't tolerate trauma or that same trauma may activate us to be even more resilient in the face of trauma. Uh, you know, one of the things that happens with first responders, uh, frontline people, you know, police, uh, army, search and rescue, is you're training through the physical process of these things. So you develop muscle memory, right? So if you're in a crisis, your, your body isn't being triggered by new experiences, uh, and really what that is, is you're, you're diminishing your focus and hypervigilance to not respond to every nuance because you've already been through that. And you can use those power of focus and vigilance to look at other things. So you're, you're reducing the number of stimuli that you're trying to respond to all at once, which is why we become overwhelmed. If you're just, you know, normal, everyday, not paying attention, all of a sudden your house is on fire, you are less likely to respond in a pragmatic, functional way than a firefighter who has trained through all of those issues and they can they can narrow their focus. They don't have to think about, you know, smoke and heat and fire processes. You know, all of that is already ingrained within them. And And some people have a very natural ability and capacity to integrate all those things, and they're really good at their job. Other people wash out. Uh, You know, we see that in any kind of special forces training. There's a really high washout rate. And, you know, I think for men, because obviously mostly men are doing that, it's like I'm weak you know, I haven't, I wasn't able to sustain. The way I look at it is we're all wired to do different things. You know, that's why I take issue with women aren't allowed to be in violent or combative situations when it really has less, I mean, at a a generalized level, yeah, physically we can't keep up, but at a nervous system level, we're both sexes have positives and negatives. Some of us are very wired. You know, I was have been listening to all this historical women's, you know, stuff and listening to what the women endured uh, who were spies in World War II, some of them sustained amounts of torture and uh, deprivation and cruelty and didn't give up any information far beyond what 99% of the male or female population didn't have anything to do with her being a woman. In fact, the one I'm thinking about, I can't remember her name, but she was a British spy, but she was Indian. She'd come from India. Her family heritage was from India. And she appeared to be very quiet and soft-spoken. She was a radio operator. And I think they said that the radio operator's lifespan was about six weeks. And so at some point she got busted and she put, she was tortured in Paris and then she was taken to Germany. Uh, she never broke uh, after however many, I think eight months or whatever she was there. She They finally killed her with the torture, but she never broke. She never gave up. Uh, and physically, she was absolutely no match for the social Uh, for the soldiers, social workers, right? Default, Uh, the soldiers, but mentally, emotionally, spiritually, she was stronger than most men and women. So who we are wired on the inside has nothing to do with our muscles or the frame of our body, but it's the same principle that certain nervous systems uh, are designed to, to function at different degrees and different types of stressors, which are just all part of the human experience. You know, I think what's even more stressful for those of us who are in the hypervigilant, hyperfocused arena is the boring. It's more stressful to be like the Hurt Locker guy, right? 
It's more stressful to be in the boringness of life than it is to be in the crisis of life. Whereas somebody who's wired in a very different way thrives in the simplicity of routine. You know, so what kills one makes the other one thrive. And, you know, this is where our ego gets caught up in all of this, where, you know, I look a certain way, so I have to be a certain way and do a certain thing. And if I can't do that, then I'm a failure versus what are we all of these things combined together to do? What is our wiring? You know, I when I worked in the emergency room, you know, this is when I was first exposed to these ideas without articulating them. I just recognized I wasn't like everybody else. And I was constantly butting heads with people because when they looked at me and I was still pretty young, I started at 28 you know, I was this nice girl that should have, I looked like I should be a banker. I looked like should be an account professional. I, I remember one doctor saying, well, you can't go talk to this guy. He was a drug addict. You're too genteel. And I'm laughing because I knew inside I am scarier and more dangerous than almost anybody else in that room, but I don't look that way. And so nobody would take me seriously until, you know, the shit would hit and then, you know, who shows up and who doesn't, right? And it's a difficult transition to make that we can't see how we're different in our physical appearance when it comes to our nervous systems, but we do experience it each other without a language around our nervous system. So that's kind of, you know, talking about what I think we can do to reframe these ideas of hypervigilant, hyperfocus, hyperreactivity on the one end, too much for most people, to hypo, too little. And you get a hyper and a hypo in the room together and they're going to kill each other, right? You put them in a crisis, the hyper moves forward. I'm going to go into the burning building, I'm going to pull out the people on fire, and the hypo person is going to be calming and uh, and uh, kind and gentle, cleaning the smoke, calming the child down. So, you know, the most important thing that I've really come to in trying to explain these things is to stop focusing on what's wrong as, oh, you're weak, oh, you're a failure, shame on you, or shame on myself, right, that I can't be kind and gentle and calming in a crisis. But what am I good at? What are we good at? Who are we at our core and stop fighting it? And how do we work with it? That's my goal with this. Now, the flip side is we live in a world that needs to pathologize everything, right? I need to make something wrong with you because if you want to seek help, one, you need a label or I don't get paid, right? Uh, then we want that label to have a flow chart to recovery, right? Step based. I can't, I never forget when, you know, insurance requires you as a therapist to have a, basically a flow chart, a treatment protocol that's supposed to work for everybody in a timeline. So, you know, the military says in 12 weeks, you need to be better or, you know, you have to just go home and deal with it. And then you don't. And what happens? Because number one, we don't even really understand what's happening. We're trying to fix things that I don't think are broken. Now let's move into the second part of this. What happens when you have been exposed to long-term sustained vigilance requiring long-term hypervigilance and hyperfocus? And you can't turn that off. And we see that with soldiers. Uh, we see that with children who have been in long-term abuse situations. Uh, we see that with torture victims. Anybody who's been in a high-stress, long-term situation either pushes into hypervigilance because that's who they naturally are, or becomes hypervigilant because they're desperately trying to survive their situation. But the result for both of them can be, not always, can be 
the inability to turn that system off. And so you come home and you can't slow down. You overreact. You hear a bang and you immediately drop to the ground because you think it's a bomb, right? Because you've got that muscle memory, just like a firefighter trains to go into a burning building. You know, someone who's been in a war zone jumps to the ground to avoid the ball. I mean, the bomb. Uh, it's the child who who runs underneath the bed or tenses up and puts the covers over their head because they hear the footsteps coming down the hall at night and their door opening and they know what's coming next. And what makes it break isn't just the sustaining factor to having to be vigilant to the danger, is not being able to do anything about it. You can't stop the bombing. You can't stop the adult abusing the child. You can't stop the gang violence in your community. Uh, you know, I think about the refugees who, especially the women and children, to go get water every time they go and get water they are at risk of being raped and killed. Can you imagine, you know, you have to go get your basic needs for water every day. You can't, because usually you can't carry more water than you can use. Uh, I think about the little children, you know, carrying these five-gallon water. And, you know, I can't even pick up a five gallons of water anymore. And they're walking it five miles at the same time being risked of rape and murder, right? How do you repeat that day in and day out? Well, you have to do it because you need water. And it doesn't matter if you're afraid. And you will not be able to turn off your vigilance. So... It's a very real thing. It's a very necessary thing. And in long-term sustained circumstances in which you can't turn it off, it will break things within you. The question is, is can you heal from that? I, you know, I think one of the most fascinating uh, stories about all this are people who have been tortured. You know, it's one thing, uh, you know, oh, I've been in a war zone and the bombs went off, but you know, you still had your uh, walls to go behind, you still had your buddies, you still had food, you still had a bed to sleep in, right? You think about people who are then captured and tortured or what's going on with so many people in so many countries being tortured, you know, sex trafficked, uh, the migration patterns, you know, all these people who are d experiencing wild amounts of uncertainty and abuse and out of control feeling. And you can be hyper vigilant all day long, but you can't stop any of it, but you can't really turn off being afraid of it. And when it ends, you know, we have this idea that you're just supposed to flip a switch and go back to your normal life. Well, you're safe now. What's the problem, right? So the military guy comes home or the prison guy gets out of prison or, you know, the the, the kidnap victim gets uh, recovered or uh, rescued uh, or the disaster ends. And you're supposed to just like, well, the story is over. Let's just go on. But for that person, it's only just begun. And culturally in society, we don't recognize that because we only like the crisis. We only like the bad part. Oh, phew, you've gotten rescued. Good for you. Uh, one of the things I really like about Tim Ballard, who is, uh, you know, the guy that the Sound of Freedom created in his organization... Is that he doesn't just rescue them and cut them loose. He takes these kids and he has follow up systems. He has uh, programs and people that work with the children to help them recover. I can't imagine a more difficult job. I mean, actually, you know, for me and those of you who are wired for danger, right, the, the, the rescuing part is the easy part, even though it looks quote unquote dangerous, right? The, the recovery is not. And so 
you know, one of the, the conflicts I have, you know, in terms of even talking about this is people who are trying to participate in the healing process, the recovery process. I'm not putting them down because they don't understand those of us who are wired for danger. I'm saying that we have to take a moment and a beat to look at all this, maybe in a different way, because, you know, somebody who's a freeze person might be very effective as a therapist to work with a freeze child, but a freeze therapist trying to work with a wired for danger soldier isn't going to work. There's no visceral understanding. Uh, And the reality is, is whatever we are, I don't think most of us understand any of that. Uh, You know, the two schools of thought that I really have gotten the most from are, um, I'm sorry, I can't think of the book, watch the dogs and talk to you. I can only look at two things, not three things. I think it's Robert Sapolsky. It's why zebras don't get ulcers. uh, And Peter Levine, who has the somatic theory and his, you know, uh, it's something about tigers. Sorry, I can't think of it right now. Uh, But both of them spend an incredible amount of their research looking at how animals in the wild, not domesticated animals, animals in the wild uh, respond to danger and stress. And, you know, what we do know about the immune system is it's only designed to cope with stress about 30 minutes. Well, anything that's long-term and sustained obviously is going to break that pattern. And because it's it becomes sustained, and the longer and longer and longer it goes on, the more damage, you know, it's more likely to do. And so we do our best, you know, we have a talking with you model, we have medication model, we have analysis model. Uh, But what I really take from those two uh, and their work is that how we were physiologically designed to function in our environment and and our social group is actually exactly what we need to recover from these sustained periods of hypervigilance and our hyperreactivity, but because we don't, as humans, live in the way that we are physically, physiologically, biologically wired to live, we are trying to substitute, you know, our kindness in our communication and our science and our pharmacology uh, and our, you know, good intentions with our therapeutic models. It just isn't enough for most people. And so now we're like, oh, you're broken, go away. I mean, we really saw that with the Vietnam veterans who came back uh, and they could never move back into society. So they just would go out and live in the woods. And And, you know, so much of this has clarified for me as a therapist, as a damaged child from abuse, as a person who's been involved with uh, a man who was so damaged from trauma, both personally as a child and professionally as a soldier who committed suicide, as someone who's done multiple, multiple interviews and assessments and uh, counseling with people who are... uh, nervous system impaired, right? When I lived, when I moved out into the wild, basically, you know, there is quote unquote civilization, but basically, you know, my life shifted to one of the elements and being very physical and having to get, you know, respond to the outside, to be outside. I had this like aha moment where so much of what we're trying to manage in an office sitting face to face, one, doesn't work for men for the most part, uh, and two, doesn't do squat for our nervous system. What what my takeaway, and this isn't, you know, just a one thing, it's just a strong component, is that we have everything in our body, in our environment, as we are designed to live, to reset our nervous system. And so what it The way I have come to understand is that so much of what's going on with this hypervigilance, you know, especially we call PTSD within uh, soldiers, is that we don't have matching periods of time to allow our nervous system to reset 
And there's nothing about the domesticated life that, you know, inside a house with a controlled environment and artificial light and your feet never touch the ground and you're never breathing air and you're not getting sunlight and you're not being physical, you know, everything works against you. You know, I had the opportunity to talk with a a guy named Jeremy. It was a while ago. And he was one of those guys. He came back. He just couldn't get back into the swing of things. And I wouldn't describe him as a wired for danger person. Uh, I would describe him as uh, probably a freezer flight person, but he couldn't recover from his experiences uh, until he went into this program uh, with horses. And it it was focused around the horse, but as he was describing it, it really reinforced the idea that I'm trying to share because he wasn't just on a horse. He was out in the middle of nowhere. It was in Wyoming or Montana, a hundred miles from civilization, you know, sleeping under the stars, just in nature day in and day out, campfires and fit being very physical and not having electronic stimulation and a very good leader, somebody who was there for him to be able to let down some of his hypervigilance and defer to this other person because he was in a safe environment, but just enough vigilance to pay attention to the elements around you. And, you know, one of the most surprising things uh, that came to me is that in our conversation is that he wasn't inspired to do this uh, because of his family. And, you know, as wives and children, like if you loved me, you would go fix yourself. And that really wasn't what got him to. I mean, he could just see the the disappointment in his wife and he didn't want to be that person anymore. But he didn't do it because of her, because all of the time before, it just wasn't enough to see her be disappointed in him and frustrated and lost and hurt and confused because she couldn't help and the system couldn't help and nothing could help. The only thing that helped was him leaving and having enough time to what I am calling, you know, resetting the nervous system. And we don't do that because, first of all, we don't live in accord with a healthy nervous system. We don't understand ourselves as a default nervous system. And nobody can really make money off it. I mean, we're trying with the horse programs and stuff, but anybody can just go and hang out in nature and you know, with a little bit of support and processing of that, I think would go a long way to resetting us into what's normal for us, which doesn't mean, you know, the hypervigilant person is now going to be a calm, focused, you know, day in and day out person, because you're still going to get bored, right? You still need that stimulation. So the last piece of all of this I want to do is I want to tie in I keep thinking, oh, I'm going to do short things and then I'm on and on, right? So the last thing I want to do is tie on the hypervigilance with the hyperreactivity. And what I mean by hyperreactivity is just for me another name of uh, what's being labeled as emotional dysregulation, which means you go from zero to 100 in a way that makes everybody else uncomfortable. And it can be violent and it can be destructive. And it's a good thing when there's somebody, a tiger is charging you or the the house is on fire or somebody's trying to rob you or you're on the front line of a war, you need to be that hyper reactive person. It doesn't work when your child startles you uh, and wants your attention like these dogs and I'm busy doing something else. Don't bother me. Right. And On a good day, I can calmly say, it's okay, guys, sit down. On a bad day, it's, you know, get the F off of me, right? And it isn't because they're doing anything wrong. It's because my capacity to react will always be hyper. I will always go from zero to 100 extremely quickly. The things that I have found, and they talk about this, you know, in 12-step programs, you know, they talk about it. Uh, in anger management is how quickly you go from zero to 100, kind of through which filter or which uh, degree. And so in a danger situation, 
you do want to go into super violent mode, right? In a, you know, dog situation, I don't need to be violent with them. I need to be calm and consistent. My capacity to do that is always in alignment with a lot of other things that are quote unquote affecting my nervous system. Am I tired? Am I already irritable? Am I under a deadline? I'm in crisis mode. Uh, am I in the middle of kind of a, uh, an emotionally processing? You know, sometimes we have a, you know, a loss or a job stress, right? There's something else. There's a secondary thing going on that's impacting uh, my experience over here, right? So I'm thinking about, oh, I'm about to lose my house and my child or my wife comes up to me or my husband uh, and says, you know, trying to get my attention and I overreact. And then we all have, you know, a big issue with it. Sometimes people hit. Uh, sometimes people storm out. Sometimes people drink. Sometimes people blame. It's happening on both sides. It's not a singular experience. It's not just one person's responsibility. Uh, you know, the child and the animal doesn't have the experience to read the room, right? Like this is a bad time to knock on the door. Let's just leave mom or dad alone. So it will never be perfect. And, you know, what's really important with children is to be able to help them understand, you know, the reactivity is not in relationship to whether they're good or bad. It's to take responsibility, you know, to clarify what's happening. Uh, and then your job as being the hyper-reactive person is to stay out of the way, hopefully, when you're like that. To recognize it within yourself, get out the way. You know, you need to leave me alone. I just need to to go for a run. I need to just go to my cave. I just need to take a drive. Whatever you need to do to reset yourself. But the more we can understand about who we are and how we are, the better we can manage our hyper reactivity. Now, to me, the most interesting thing is how does hypervigilance and hyperreactivity intersect? In a super dangerous, super tense situation, they are the perfect pairing. You are on high alert and you are ready to go off the handle at a flash because all of your senses are alive. You're paying attention to everything. You are stalking your prey. Unfortunately, this works both for uh, good predators and bad predators, right? You are at your peak level of what you were born to be. Every sense is on alert. Every thought is focused to this exact moment in time. And you are ready like a hair trigger to react. And for those of us who understand what I'm saying, it feels awesome. And when you are protecting or you're hunting or you're doing something in the positive category, everybody loves you. Oh, look, you just took down that great big elk and now we're going to eat all winter. One of my favorite uh, memories of reading is uh, Crazy Horse talking about uh, it was an oral history and it was a guy, you know, repeating his story about what it felt like to be on horseback in a buffalo pack with your bow and arrow and how dangerous it was and how much skill it took and how important it was to provide for your family and how much of a thrill it was for your body and your brain to come at this peak moment, not die and accomplish your goal. And I could just feel it, right? Like, oh, that's one of those peak awesome moments where hypervigilance and hyperreactivity all come together and you're like, oh, this is what I was born for. The problem is that those moments that we are quote unquote born for are few and far between. And when we are in a position like war or torture or kidnapping or an abusive relationship or child or sexual abuse, 
or, you know, being a sex slave or all these things that have super sustained levels where our hypervigilance wasn't allowed to turn off and our nervous system hasn't been allowed to reset, we are never going to be able to just go home and wake up and have everything be okay. There is a recovery process. There is a restoration process that must occur. We're always going to be hyper-reactive if we are a wired-for-danger person, but we cannot go through life hyper-vigilant 24-7, 365. We must have the time and space to allow our nervous system to reset. The fine line, and I don't have an answer for this, but I'm just going to share it as a last uh, closing thoughts here, is that the capacity to shift degree in our vigilance from soft vigilance to hypervigilance. Uh, you know, hypovigilance is just being oblivious, which is what most domesticated animals and humans are. We are oblivious to what's going on around us. And then one way we wake up and we're at war. One day we wake up and we're dying from some preventable disease. One day we wake up and our car runs out of gas, right? So hypovigilance is nothing I would ever promote because we have a responsibility to pay attention. The, to me, the uh, degree is in a soft vigilance, meaning uh, right now my vigilance is turned down because even though the dogs are stressed and want to go out, they're just sitting side by side. They're not thrashing around. They're not shoving into my space. They're not doing anything. So I can soften my vigilance in paying attention to them as I focus on you versus when they're banging around versus, right, when I'm uh, outside, like the other morning, you know, I'm taking them out to go to the bathroom at four in the morning and it's dark and there's a lot of trees so I can't see. And I hear there's an animal. I don't know what it is. I don't want to know what it is. There's no bears here. There's mostly just things that run away. But I want to get out really quickly. But I'm in constant vigilance mode when I'm in the dark, you know, with me and the dogs because I can't see anything. So my hearing is hyper alert. My sensory is, you know, my, my uh, radar is expanded and intense because I can't see. I can only hear. Now, the flip side is when I lived in an open plain area and I could see for half a mile in all directions. And so I take the dog out. I had the capacity to soften that vigilance because I only had to detect danger from like a half mile away, which gave me plenty of time unless that one time that guy was shooting and I didn't know if he what direction he was shooting in. So uh, he, I, the guy was shooting coyotes without any awareness that there was a human being on the other side of that. So, uh, but I can soften my vigilance because my perimeter has expanded wildly. And we need to understand that about ourselves. So I don't have to be, uh, unless it's snake season, then if it's snake season, I have to do two things. I have to watch my feet and then I have to watch around me. Uh, you know, I would see that with the cows and the, the antelope the difference between their perimeter, the cows were oblivious to danger unless it was really close. And they really only cared and paid attention if you were bringing them food. The wildlife was super vigilant in a much wider perimeter. Uh, and they were never looking to you for reward for food. They were only looking at you if you were perceived as dangerous. And that was so interesting to me, you know, to see the difference because they were side by side. The The antelope and the cows were on the same field feeding at the same time, 
but having very different reactions in terms of their capacity to be vigilant. Uh, You know, one of the problems with quote-unquote civilization is most humans have turned their vigilance off completely. And some of that is a survival mechanism. You know, when you're in New York City, I had a gal from New York tell, tell me, all you do is look at your feet because you're trying to establish your own tiny safe zone, right? Your little tiny privacy zone that's inches from your body because there's so many people. But, you know, often people are wearing headsets or they're looking at their phone. They're, they have no situational awareness because they're just trying to stay in their own tiny little bubble. So it's very easy to steal or to assault or to rob because people are not paying attention. And you can't be vigilant with a thousand people around you, you would lose your mind, right? It's easy for me when I'm the only person in a square mile, and I can see with just an eye, a half mile around me, all I have to detect is a slight movement, and I can pay attention. But my vigilance can be softened. So I'm not putting so much energy, put me in the middle of a city, right? I'm losing my mind. I don't have the capacity anymore because my nervous system isn't wired to turn off and I'm overwhelmed in a in an environment where there's too much stimuli. So the same thing, I'm in war, I'm constantly aware when I'm out in public, I just can't come home and turn that off. And The reality is, is that people who freeze up and run away, who don't want to deal with danger, want you to turn it off because when you've got it turned on, you're saying, hey, this is a danger. Hey, that is a danger. And if I'm domesticated uh, and I want my government to keep me safe and I don't want responsibility to pay attention to my situation, I certainly don't want people telling me what to be afraid of. So it isn't a simple conversation about, oh, you were a soldier, you have PTSD, you need to just flip the switch, take this drug and everything will be okay. Uh, If you were a person designed to be hypervigilant, you do need to restore your nervous system if it's been extended into that hyper model for too long. You do need to understand your relationship between hypervigilance and hyperreactivity. But culturally, we need to understand that everybody is in a different place on the continuum. All of us have a different capacity to be vigilant in the same way that a blind person can hear things the rest of us can't. A deaf person can see things the rest of us can't. We all are interacting with our environment in a specifically unique way to us. And so there's a couple things that we need to think about. How do I want to react? Like you cannot, I will never be able to live in the city again. I can't take that level of stimulation. I don't want to. I like being aware. I don't like being in the trees. I can't see what's going on. I like being in the open. My nervous system needs the open. Now, is that a product of being a young child and having to listen and watch, you know, for what's coming down the hallway? I tend to think I was born this way. Uh, That system got broken a little bit as a child. Uh, I've managed it very well, but I'm never going back to just thinking everybody is safe. I'm just never going to pay attention again. I think that's stupid. So yeah, I am super vigilant when a stranger comes onto the property. Once I know you, then I can relax. I can soften my vigilance because you could flip on a dime, right? You could be conning me. It could be a million different things. So we have to decide who we are naturally, who we want to be as an intentional decision Uh, Do I want to be a scout living on the edges, paying attention to what's going on? Or do I want to be in the house, just taking care of the core needs of making sure we're safe with how we cook and how clean the house is? Uh, Do I want to be uh, part of a machine? Do I want to be part of a business where I don't have to pay attention to the big picture? I can just focus on my little piece. Or do I want to be part of the uh, thinking, vigilance, future, you know, do I want to be evaluating and analyzing where my business is going to go? All of this is under that vigilance category. So 
It isn't about just fixing our hypervigilance as a result of having PTSD or complex PTSD or whatever. It's a decision about who we are naturally, because we're all different. We all had different experiences. We all have the ability to integrate those experiences. We all have the capacity to make a decision what we want to do with that experience. You know, my experiences personally and professionally make me an expert at very, very quickly evaluating a stranger. Good, bad, dangerous, safe. You know, it's not something that anybody else values, but over time, I'm right most of the time. So I don't have to wait for that person to steal from me. I can just dismiss that person immediately, right? Where someone else has to spend six months to a year before they get betrayed and then they're a victim. Oh, poor me, right? Or they could have asked me. So we all have a different set of experiences. We get to decide how we want to be. We get to choose the physical environment that best supports our individual nervous system. We can stop announcing that you're broken if you don't function in the world like everybody else and look at the nervous system as a real biological, physiological system that needs to be rebooted and restored just like a computer, just like a car. You know, if it gets something gets interrupted, if there's a glitch, you don't like throw up your hands and, you know, melt down and become labeled as broken for the rest of your life. You, it can be reset and restored. And yes, there will be exceptions. There's some people, you know, and that's my theory is that there's freeze flight people that were put into situations that only wired for danger people should have been put in. And they were pushed so far past their capacity to cope. They will never recover because it's too broken. You can recover and function in the same way, you know, if you break your leg and it's reset and it never quite works the right way. You may not be able to run a marathon, but you can still walk. So it's not about being broken. It's about understanding this relationship with focus, vigilance, and reactivity. And all these things come together because we all have all three. And it's by understanding what these things are that we can then make decisions about what's best for us to restore our process. Uh, You know, if I'm somebody that's wired for danger, I do great in nature. If I'm a freeze person, I might do really well in a deprivation tank. You know, if I'm a wired for danger person, you put me in a deprivation tank, probably going to lose my mind. So it's never about right or wrong. It's about understanding without judging and criticizing and condemning or controlling or pathologizing. And, you know, we just haven't moved to a place in our therapeutic process of trying to quote unquote help that we're all going to respond to something different, but it's our personal responsibility to understand ourselves. And, you know, what I love about this nervous system model is it's really simple. When something scary happens, do you move into the danger? Is your instinct to run away from the danger? Or do you freeze up in the danger? Now, as a side note, one of the things I find most hilarious, especially from men, is they can be super wired for danger, for combat and war, but you ask them about a feeling and you can't run away fast enough. So we all have all three nervous system responses to perceived and real danger. But I'm talking about physical fear danger. That's the most defining thing that we respond to as our, uh, because that's a survival mechanism. You know, it's a cultural thing. I'm afraid of talking about my feelings. Uh, How I respond to a tiger running at me is very key and base and primal in terms of how our body is wired. 
our brain is wired. So that is a lot to think about. That is a lot that goes against, uh, you know, contemporary understanding. Uh, and there's nothing about that that makes anybody rich or famous because it's just who we are. And we have everything we need to function within that system and to reset and restore and recover. But what we don't have is understanding or a culture of domestication that allow, because we are domesticated, that allows us to do what we need to do. We might need to go live in the woods for a year or two, and that may not work for your family, but that may be what you need. And so uh, there is nothing simple about this in its application, but I think it's very simple in its understanding. It's just to step back and say, we all are different. We just need to understand where we are on the continuum of focus, vigilance, and reactivity, and figure out what works best for us without this demand that we all be perfect and conform to a single ideal. I know I don't even want to if I could. So with that, it's been an hour. It's a lot to take in. Deep breath, my friends, and I will see you next time.